Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. As the opioid crisis continues to rage in the United States, we in emergency medicine are continuing to walk the line between acute pain control in the ED and our concern about the habit-forming effects of opioids. We've started walking back from the use of intravenous opioids when we can, among our concerns, the euphoria they can produce and a possibility of future opioid dependence. But what do we really know about opioid-induced euphoria when used for acute pain relief in the emergency department? We all know how well intravenous opioids work for analgesia in the setting of relieving acute pain, but what about euphoria and the potential downstream effects of that? Today we're talking with Dr. Benjamin Friedman about his team's new study in AEM entitled Opioid-Induced Euphoria Among Emergency Department Patients with Acute Severe Pain, an Analysis of Data from a Randomized Trial. Dr. Friedman is a professor of emergency medicine and a practicing emergency physician at Montefiore and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. His research has largely focused on how to help patients with acute pain, and we're excited to speak with him today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access through the month of November 2020. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So most of us are by now aware of the heavy responsibility of administering opioids in the emergency department and prescribing opioids. And so before we get into the meat of your study, let's talk about a little background of the emergency department's role in the opioid crisis. I know people love to point the finger at us, but what do we know right now about the impact of our prescribing and the use of intravenous medications while patients are in the ED with us? So, so current emergency practice uh, has become much more restrictive with regard uh, to opioid uh, use and prescribing. Um, nowadays, with the increased awareness of the long-term harms of opioids, and, and I guess also the regulatory speed bumps that prescribers face, uh, there's been um, a dramatic decrease in the number of, of opioids prescribed, um, with a resultant uh, decrease in long-term opioid harm. Um, so opioid-naive patients who present to an ED and receive an opioid prescription have a risk of long-term opioid use of, of probably only about uh, 1%, and that's based on, on three studies that have come out in the last five years or so that uh, used a variety of different methods to, to look at opioid-naive ED patients and look at their long-term outcomes after getting, getting some, uh, some opioid prescriptions. Um, although that 1% probably isn't true among certain groups of, pa of patients. There are patients who are at higher risk, and those, those include uh, patients with low back pain and probably patients with, um, with, with different types of arthritis. With, re with regard to injectable opioids, um, uh, the link between uh, intravenous or intramuscular opioids in the ED uh, and long-term opioid harm, I, I would say, is tenuous at best and probably restricted to patients with, uh, with recurrent pain syndromes. And so specifically thinking here of, of migraine and, and low back pain. So I would definitely avoid uh, opioids for migraine where it's clear that there are definitely better alternatives. 
And I almost never use parenteral opioids uh, for, for low back pain. But I would, I would strongly encourage generous use of opioids for, um, for you know, unbearably painful conditions that we see commonly, things like you know, ovarian torsion or burns. Uh, you know, opioids really are uh, our primary weapon against uh, acute severe pain. Um, and, and really long-term harms of opioids shouldn't even be part of the equation when, uh, when someone is treating uh, acute severe pain. I appreciate that. So let's talk about the study. So your study was, it was a planned analysis of data from a randomized double-blind comparative effectiveness trial whose primary results have already been published. So can you say a few words about the original published trial? Uh, sure. So um, uh, my buddy and former colleague, uh, Elliot Chin, uh, read some really interesting published data and thought that uh, IV lidocaine could be an effective analgesic for, uh, for kidney stones in particular, uh, and uh, and uh, severe abdominal pain in general. So, so based you know based on these studies that we saw, uh, we designed a randomized study in which we compared 120 milligrams of IV lidocaine to one milligram of of, uh, IV, uh, of IV hydromorphone for um, for opioid naive ED patients with, with acute severe abdominal pain. Um, so, in that in that parent study, patients could receive a second dose of the of the same study medication if they failed to improve. Although that that part of the study doesn't really impact the results that we're talking about today. In that parent study, uh, the results favored hydromorphone substantially. So it's clear that hydromorphone is is a much better painkiller than than IV lidocaine, uh, and that was true in both uh, ureterocolic in in particular and and, and abdominal pain in general. So then what was the objective of today's study that we're talking about today? So, so this study is a part of a series of studies uh, that, that, that we started on in which we're trying to get a sense of, of euphoria, opioid-induced euphoria, and the role of that um, in predicting uh, long-term bad, bad outcomes among patients who receive opioids. So you know, intuitively, we can think that there are two ways that somebody might go from uh, from opioid naive to an opioid use disorder. Uh, one one important way, uh, of course, is continuing pain. So somebody uh, has acute pain, they take an opioid, uh, the pain continues, they take more opioids, and so on and so on, and uh, and uh, you know, eventually, uh, you know, they they have opioid uh, use disorder and probably a chronic pain syndrome too. The other uh, um, uh, pathway uh, that seems intuitive is um, is through euphoria. So um, an opioid naive patient will take an opioid for for acute pain and like it. There's something about the op- opioid that just makes them feel good. And so uh, then they progress, not because the pain is particularly bad, but because of the euphoria that they get from, um, from taking the opioid. Uh, now, there, we really don't have a good way to measure this. Uh, you know, we can measure uh, euphoria in patients who don't have pain. We can measure uh, euphoria in healthy volunteers. We can measure euphoria in uh, patients who use opioids uh, recreationally. Um, but uh, for for patients with, with with acute pain, how do you go about uh, um, determining whether they're truly feeling euphoria? And so that was the goal of the study to try to get a handle on euphoria, to try to see if we could tease out euphoria. Uh, and separate it from uh, the relief of um, of acute pain, uh, and so um, you know we we think of this still as a sort of preliminary work where we're just beginning to get a handle on this. We're, we're just uh, beginning to get a sense of uh, how patients with um, with acute pain 
can distinguish between the pain relief and uh, and the euphoric sensations that they feel that are directly attributable to the opioid. So just to explore this a little deeper, as you said in your introduction of the paper, um, most studies of opioid-induced euphoria have been with healthy volunteers or with patients with previous opioid use disorder. And so, you know, this whole notion of studying it in the ED, and um, I think you state that it's complicated by happiness that effective pain treatment can cause. And so it's hard to tease out whether the pleasurable sensations experienced by the patient are truly euphoria or whether these sensations are giddiness caused by the relief of pain. So I am very interested in how you went about teasing this out because I imagine I, I would think this would be very difficult. So, so talk to us a little bit about the methods of the study. Yeah. So I love, I love that word giddiness, which, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, we all see, yeah, we, we, you, but we see it clinically. Right. And I, I got to tell you, like, uh, you know, how many times, you know, for example, you go to a migraine patient, uh, you know, you, you, you have a migraine patient who's just been suffering for days and you give them some, you know, metoclopramide or procorperazine or ketorolac or whatever you use primarily for migraine. And you go back uh, an hour later uh, and they're smiling like, like they're, uh, yes. there, there's a joy that, that comes out of, you know, finally getting, um, uh, you know, getting, getting rid of that pain. Oh yes. Um, I, I would say that for each of my children, when that epidural <laughs> went in, I was positively giddy. Yeah. yeah. And there were no opioids involved. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so, the, so there, you know, so how, how do we go about capturing that? Uh, so, so, you know, it's a great question and a, a question that we've, uh, we sort of spent a, a lot of time, uh, sort of thinking about the way that we approached it in this study was by using regression models. And so, you know, regression models uh, theoretically allow you to account for a, a variety of different variables and see how each of these different variables impacts the, the answer that you're looking for. And so the answer that we're looking for is, is euphoria. And we, we you know, measured euphoria by asking um, patients, well, you know, how, how, how good do you feel? How, uh, how, how happy do you feel? How, how high do you feel? And, uh, and so what we did was we accounted for the relief of pain that they got because all these patients experienced some amount of relief of pain. Some experienced very little and some experienced uh, a fair amount. And so we accounted for that relief of pain uh, by, by using the regression models. You know? And so the regression models would do something like say, you know, if you improve by four points on a zero to 10 scale, then you should feel this much happiness. If you improve by um, five points on the zero to 10 scale, you should feel this good. And everything that was sort of above and beyond that was theoretically the euphoria. So everything that went beyond the, the happiness or feeling good that you got from relief of pain uh, uh, theoretically is euphoria. Um, that, uh, um, you know, uh, something that, that goes above and beyond the, the therapeutic uh, um, intent of, of the medication. Now, we threw one other variable in the model, you know, in addition to, um, to looking at uh, relief of pain. Uh, and, you know, whether or not the patient got an opioid, we also looked at side effects because we thought that would uh, that would impact um, uh, how much happiness or, or feeling good somebody would have. And so, you know, for example, if, uh, you know, if, if you uh, if you got great re relief of pain, but you got really bad nausea uh, due to the medication, then you probably wouldn't be quite as happy. And I, I guess we could probably talk about that a little bit more later. Sure. So I'm still, I'm kind of hung up on these, the pleasurable sensation scales um, and this differentiation between feeling, it was feeling good, feeling high and feeling happy. And just, I subjectively feel like I might have a hard time differentiating between these things. You know, is feeling good? Is that different from feeling happy? Like, 
maybe it's me and my emotional vocabulary, but can you talk to us a little bit about the tools that you used and how those tools were developed and in what kind of population? I think you mentioned this in the in when you discussed the limitations of this paper as well. Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's a great question, uh, and I don't know that I have a great answer. Um, you know, ultimately, we're trying to find an instrument that helps us detect this phenomenon and then helps us uh, predict uh, long-term opioid use disorder. Uh, and so we hoped that by altering the question subtly, uh, we, might be, uh, we might be, you know, more likely to get at the underlying truth. And as it turned out in this analysis, there, there wasn't that much difference between feeling good uh, and feeling happy. And, you know, looking at the question of, of feeling high, you know, that feeling high didn't seem to perform quite as robustly as, as the feeling good and feeling happy didn't uh, seem to help differentiate quite as much. But ultimately, we're going to keep looking at this and see if we can come up with some way to, um, you know, to, 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 um, to categorize what people are feeling and see if there's some key word or, or you know, some key variable that will help us um, uh, predict who, who, who exactly is, is at long-term uh, risk. I mean, the, the problem, as you mentioned, is that these, uh, you know, uh, nobody has done this type of research among acute pain patients. This research comes from, you know, healthy volunteers and recreational opioid users. And for those patients, feeling good or feeling happy is so much different than for somebody who's in, in acute pain. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're a bit in the dark here trying to figure out what the right term is, and we're going to keep at it. We're going to keep doing uh, different iterations of this till we till we can come up with uh, with a tool that, that that helps us clinically. Excellent. So so tell us about the results. So um, the the results uh, were interesting, um, <laughs> at least uh, at <laughs> least to me. Um, and so basically, what we found is that. Uh, that um, pain relief was an important predictor of feeling good uh, and feeling high and feeling happy. Um, uh, and I think that's probably not a surprise to anybody. Uh, and it turned out that um, uh, whether or not you got an opioid uh, also was a predictor of feeling good, feeling high or feeling happy, although not quite as robust as, uh, as pain relief. And in fact, you know, in some of these multivariable models, um, whether or not you got an opioid wasn't always a statistically significant predictor uh, of, of uh, feeling high or feeling happy. So pain relief was a much more important predictor of, of how people, uh, people rated uh, uh, themselves on this feeling good, feeling high, or feeling happy score. Uh, and if we could sort of put a number to it, pain relief was probably about three times more important than, than whether or not you got an opioid. Uh, interestingly, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, medication side effects was not a predictor at all of, uh, of um, whether or not you felt good, felt high, uh, or felt uh, happy. Um, and so, you know, the question now is how to how to interpret this. So it's clear that um, pain relief is uh, is three times more important than whether or not you got an opioid. But whether or not you got an opioid does have some predictive ability, uh, you know. And if, if we can think of a sort of a, a, um, a sort of a, a minimum clinically important threshold, uh, whether or not you got an opioid probably does just get over that threshold of uh, of, of sort of clinical importance. Um, and so I think the you, you know the, the best way to sum up these data is to say that. Uh, you know, pain relief is a very important predictor of uh, of euphoria. But beyond that, whether or not you got an opioid probably does have a bit of an effect. Okay. 
Um, and you did mention the side effects in there. I want to tease that out a little bit because I thought it was a little bit surprising. Um, so the incidence of side effects, uh, it surprised me that it didn't seem to change the patient perception of the pleasurable sensations very much. Yeah, I, you know, I was very surprised by that also. Uh, and I think the reason for this is the side effects that people felt were probably uh, relatively mild and relatively transient in the scheme of the other issues at play. So, um, uh, you know, if you're having really bad pain uh, and we can get your pain relieved, then whether or not you had a little bit of nausea or a little bit of paritis uh, probably doesn't matter quite as much. And I think that's probably the best way to interpret it because, you know, I'm, I'm not sure uh, why else it would be. I mean, I, I think clearly if people had, you know, were having lots of major side effects, then it would have had more of an impact. But most of the side effects that people uh, were reporting, again, were were uh, relatively, uh, relatively minor, relatively mild, and relatively short-lived. Okay. Now, one thing I, I think it's important to point out is that the hydromorphone in this study was administered in 50 to 100 cc's normal saline over 10 minutes. And we do talk about giving opioids in a, a slower infusion. I think that's often recommended to reduce euphoria. Um, I, I think in practice, this is not the case as often um, as, as maybe we would like to see. So how might that affect the generalizability of your results? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, the reason that we did it this way, uh, you know, recognizing that it probably didn't uh, exactly reflect uh, current clinical practice uh, is that we wanted to um, maximize the safety of, of that parent clinical trial or the study of the IV lidocaine and, and the IV hydromorphone. I mean, these were patients who were volunteering to, to participate um, in, you know, in a randomized clinical trial. And they were, they were giving us their consent at a time that they were experiencing uh, acute severe pain. So, so we really felt the onus on making, uh, you know, to make the study as safe as possible. Sure. Uh, and we thought we had two medications, both uh, IV hydromorphone and IV lidocaine that, you know, if you bang in real quickly, you know, potentially could cause more, more side mm -hmm. effects. And so that was the rationale for, for this design. With regard to generalizability, I would actually say that, uh, I don't think it's all that important for this study because remember, this study isn't uh, isn't necessarily a clinical study. This is still more of a research mm -hmm. study. We're still sort of uh, groping around in the dark, trying to come up with uh, with a tool that hopefully one day we'll, we can use in a clinical setting to predict which patients are, are you know higher risk of, of progressing to to opioid use disorder. Um, but you know, I don't know that there's uh, an immediate takeaway for clinicians from this work uh, other to be you know other than you know to know that opioids you know can cause some euphoria which which i think you know most clinicians probably know uh and to um and to understand that that patients uh you know really appreciate good pain relief which you know again is something i think most most clinicians know Okay, so that brings me. <laughs> so this brings me. There's a commentary on your paper in the in the November 2020 AEM issue, and uh, and they conclude, um, quote, while we all agree that pain reduction is a key principle of compassionate emergency care, imparting risk through the use of euphoric medication, no matter how small the high, does not satisfy the perhaps most important principle: primum non nocere, above all, do no harm. What are your thoughts on that? So uh, my former chair, uh, Dr. John Gallagher, one of the giants of emergency medicine, actually preached the opposite. He always thought of euphoria as an added bonus. 
So remember, the population we're talking about uh, here are patients with, uh, with severe acute pain. I mean, think of somebody with a really bad burn uh, or an ischemic gut or you know, aortic dissection. I mean, these are patients who are having one of the worst days of their lives. Uh, so, you know, anything that we can do to get their minds uh, um, off, uh, off, off their pain is warranted. Uh, the, you know, the, the problem is when uh, you sort of get, you know, a bit of this uh, indication creep. You know, one, one really does need to start to think more and more about the, the, um, the long-term side effects. Um, I mean, listen, every, everything that we do in emergency medicine is, is a balance between, uh, between uh, risks and benefits. Um, and I would say that, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, the more severe the pain, uh, the more acute the pain, uh, you know, and the less likely the pain is to reoccur, uh, the more appropriate uh, IV opioids are. And when you get to patients with um, recurrent pain syndromes, particularly uh, for rec recurrent pain syndromes that uh, have a reasonable alternative therapy, uh, I think one really does need to start thinking about um, long-term sequela uh, and uh, euphoria may be a part of that. Ho you know, hopefully we'll, we'll you know, tease that out and, and begin to figure out how, how, you know, how impactful uh, euphoria is at, at predicting this transition to, um, to, to opioid use disorder. Great. So just to wrap things up, you mentioned that you're going to continue this work. What study would you like to see come next? Well, we really need to begin to think about uh, how to make this clinically relevant, um, you know, how to take what we've learned so far and, and, and you know, begin to create a tool that, uh, that clinicians can, can use. Uh, and so, you know, the study that we need to do is, is determine whether these uh, instruments can predict the transition to opioid use disorder, among, you know, among ED patients who present uh, opioid naive. Uh, so, you know, if you have somebody who's opioid naive, um, uh, you, you give them an opioid, what is their likelihood of progressing to opioid use disorder? And can these instruments help us predict that transition? So uh, we know that, uh, you know, among opioid uh, naive ED patients, uh, the frequency with which they progress to opioid use disorder is quite uh, uncommon. Uh, you know, and we know from some of the studies that I quoted in the beginning uh, that uh, only about 1% of ED patients who are opioid naive, only 1% of them progress to just persistent opioid use. And that's not even opioid use disorder. Uh, persistent opioid use is just, uh, is just patients who uh, get four or five prescriptions for opioids over the, over the months after the ED visit. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to, um, to design a study where we're looking specifically at, uh, at opioid use disorder. So I think the next study is going to have to use some type of intermediate uh, endpoint, something like, you know, frequent opioid prescriptions. And so uh, I, I guess that's the study to do next, to, to take opioid naive patients, uh, patients who get an opioid prescription at the time that they're leaving the ED uh, and follow them uh, and see how many of them, uh, you know, wind up getting four or five or six opioid prescriptions uh, in the months after the ED discharge. And then we've got to look at these euphoria questions and to see whether these euphoria questions can predict those patients who, uh, who, are, who are more likely to, get, uh, to, to have persistent opioid use. Well, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for your work and for your time. It's very important. And I appreciate your coming to talk with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest in this article.
Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.